Hi everyone, and welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we explore the science of crime and the practical application of this science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Take advantage of the advanced video capabilities offered by Bosch to help reduce your shrink risk. Integrate video recordings with point-of-sale data for visual verification of transactions and exception reporting. Use video analytics for immediate notification of important AP-related events and leverage analytics metadata for fast forensic searches for evidence and to improve merchandising and operations. Learn more about extending your video system beyond simple surveillance in Zones 1 through 4 of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at boschsecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science Podcast. This is the latest in our weekly update series. Um, You know, we'll start off as too often talking a little bit about the COVID-19 disease that comes from the SARS-CoV-2 virus um, and all its forms. And, um, you know, there are there are new cases. It continues to wax and wane or to surge and drop off. Um, it, it does look like viruses are doing what they do. They spread and they adapt like humans do. And like offenders to our uh, countermeasures, they adapt, adjust, and overcome. And so we've seen that. Most new cases in the United States um, as they went through and did another uh, pretty rigorous analysis, are the unvaccinated people, and evidently vac- unvaccinated people are uh, sort of riding on and taking advantage of the vaccinated people and starting to think that they have some level of protection that they probably don't have the same level of protection. Depends. Vaccines are you know 80 to 95 percent uh, efficacious, so there's everybody has some vulnerability um, to them. So that we're looking at that. Um, there, there's some of the long COVID explanations now with so many different, with some of the new modern imaging tech techniques and so on that why are people having long COVID? I've got two family members that got COVID and, um, still, uh, almost a year later have, um, different taste and smell, uh, sensations and, um, and effects. And there looks like that comes from, uh, COVID-19 can, uh, takes away some of the, uh, gray matter or brain matter around those areas that we smell and taste with. And so that seems to account for that. They're seeing pretty significant findings in the effects and trying to explain uh, how the disease affects us, uh, our blood vessels in different areas, and um, including the brain. Um, The variants we continue to hear about and uh, the Delta variant that was first identified in India, the Delta Plus now that seems even more Enhanced now, we're starting to hear about lambda. I'm not, nobody's explained to me yet, or that I can find why we jumped from delta to lambda, but um, that also seems to be much uh, more contagious. Um, the you know, there seems to be good protection from these variants so far. From if you're double dosed with one of the uh, vaccines, it looks like new data coming out on AstraZeneca that they, when they widen the gap between dose one and two from 12 weeks to 45, roughly 45 weeks, that they found a much greater uh, immune response, immunogenicity. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of excitement around some of the things, including, you know, this, we've talked about this now for months and months, the Novavax. And uh, I've seen some interesting articles around the Novavax vaccine and how um, they did not join up like, um, Moderna had the FDA and had some pretty significant resources. Obviously, um, the BioNTech joined up with Pfizer because of all their resources. And, and these organizations know how to put on a, a trial, you know, or a series of phase one, two, and three 
um, clinical trials, human trials, and do it in a, in a rigorous way, do it as rapidly or efficiently as possible, and so on, whereas Novavax did not team up with a large group. So, But theirs is looking like it was 96% the same efficaciousness against the, the, what we were seeing earlier in uh, 2020 and later in 2020, um, but still seems to be holding up at around 90% against a lot of these variants, evidently, according to new clinical data out. Um, and uh, also is, again, easier and cheaper to manufacture and easier and cheaper to store and transport, administer, it even has fewer uh, immune response effects, you know, the fever and feeling tired and fatigue and all that. So, um, you know, we still have these other options to take a look at and it's older technology. Um, it was the same technology used for hepatitis B that's so prevalent, that vaccine and, and very effective. Um, with low side effects and the same thing with pertussis, which most school children get um, today. So it, it's great to see that and that we're still moving through. We've talked about there are 77 right now preclinical vaccine candidates um, in development, an additional 94, as we've mentioned before, clinical or human uh, testing, uh, 50, roughly 50 in phase one trials, uh, 37 in phase two, 30 two and phase three. And that means we still have eight with the emergency use authorization. We're waiting to see where Pfizer um, and Moderna and others come out on the total authorization. Um, and this is nothing new. I know there are people saying, well, it's still an experimental and so on. And we talked about last night, actually, a group where looking at the, the available information that we have non-physician scientists, um, that this is the most heavily uh, research vaccines in history, the idea that they were rushed uh, really comes more from you had the power of, say, a Pfizer or, or the FDA of Moderna to, again, as I just mentioned, assemble and operate, uh, you know, massive uh, phase one, two or, or phase three trials, but at the same time, phase one and two. Uh, and so they were able to do this thing very rigorously, but efficiently. Uh, but the fact that these phase one and two, three trials um, were run in other countries and so on. That's not actually always the same. It depends on the drug, my understanding is. So the, again, it was the manufacturing of these vaccines, the production of them, the repurposing of factories and so on, uh, based on the prior administration's you know, Operation Warp Speed that allowed these things. So if the findings came out to be positive and all the different levels and strata of approval teams and committees and scientists then gave uh, emergency approval or were endorsing the vaccine is highly efficacious and safe, safe and effective, um, then they were ready. They were ready to go uh, as well as the transport and distribution, uh, which we saw uh, started out a little bit slowly in all the countries um, other than tiny ones like, say, Iceland or Israel, um, but in the massive countries like ours, but then took off pretty quickly and we're uh, immunizing a million people a day in the United States uh, in December of 2020. So um, a little bit of an update there. Um, and concerns, I think, right now are not to address any of those concerns. We want to talk about that. And the fact that now worldwide over 3 billion, billion doses have been administered. Um, you know, we're looking at probably in the United States alone, 155 million Americans have been fully immunized or vaccinated, whether it's the one dose J&J or the two dose Pfizer or Moderna. Um, so it's pretty massive. We're talking about half of the United States 
citizens uh, or residents. And then uh, additionally, it's a very much higher uh, percentage of adults. Uh, we see it vary by state um, based on their infrastructure, based on uh, misunderstandings, pushback, um, just the way the populations dispersed and all these things that are tending to affect that. But the idea is with, with these variants coming along, uh, developing uh, in people that are not immunized, uh, in countries that are not immunized, you know, the United States, we're so far ahead, um, as is the UK and so on. Um, it's difficult to relate to these countries, including places like Japan and so on, that are very advanced societies that may still have single digit vaccination rates. Um, and they're racing to fill the gap, but it's just, it's a tough thing to administer in so many countries around the world. Um, but it's really going to be the key uh, to, to getting out of this thing is being able to get people that their immune systems are launched. And there's some good emerging research now. We've had enough time. There are enough research teams working rigorously on it. Um, you know, you, you've seen about, I think there are uh, the, I guess the CDC is reporting just over 4,000 vaccinated people where they report breakthrough. In other words, they were, um, they got sick, they were admitted to a hospital somewhere um, and they had been vaccinated and they were admitted for COVID-19 disease. Again, bear in mind, that's out of, you know, 155 million. Um, but it does, it's what everybody expects that vaccines are going to adapt, adjust and overcome or our bodies don't respond the same either. And we know that with blood pressure medications or exercise diets, right? We all are affected differently. Um, it's what, how that, the mechanisms of action of the therapy or the vaccination or the vaccine, excuse me, uh, but it's also the pharmacological or the, the kinetic response of our bodies to that. Uh, it just varies. And, and we see that in the science that we do with offenders. They differentially respond to something. So if we put a, an enhanced public view monitor, some are going to see it, some are not, some are going to know what it is, some are not, and some are going to respond the way we'd like, and some are not. And for all varying reasons from impairment to eyesight to, you know, staring at their phone or inattentional deficit, you know, to uh, reluctant skepticism, uh, you know, whatever it might be. Right. So we see the same thing biologically, um, with these medications, um, th with the MRNA, um, messenger RNA vaccines that we've got the two that have made it through. There were several candidates, if we all remember at least a dozen, um, two that came through all the phase one, two, and three testing in the U S and around the world, the Pfizer and Moderna, but we're now going in, they're going in and looking at those people that were initial tests. And so we've got data, they're over a year old now, um, from the initial test subjects, uh, participants in different countries, and looks like very good B cell response. In other words, antibodies are launched, but then these particular B cells are what launch new antibodies and so on. And so there'll be, they'll be looking at the T cells and so on to see what the memory is. But it looks like it could be good long-term response, at least a year, which is pretty good. Um, compared to other uh, vaccines over time, over history, or our own immune responses the, from those of us that got COVID-19 to see, all right, now, do we have any immunity left from us fighting it on our own? Um, and again, remember, the vaccine is designed so their body's already ready. And so that we don't have to try and diagnose and understand this, our immune systems, the adaptive and innate, uh, but rather we're already ginned up and ready to go if we're infected. And remember, there's a difference between infection and the disease. And so you see these athletes and others, those vaccinated or not, that are testing positive 
for the presence of the SARS-CoV-2 virus or the particles, they're infected. We're infected with it, but does that mean that our, we get sick? Or And so the vaccines are not necessarily designed to prevent or even reduce infection, even though my understanding is some are doing that. Um, they're designed to help our bodies not become sick or as sick uh, from the uh, infection from the virus so that uh, we're not there. And then again, the over-response of many of our immune systems that created so much havoc, uh, all these cytokine and other storms and things like that, where there's an over-response, our body's already got the healthy response ready so that we don't go into overdrive potentially. So that's what the vaccines are designed for. Um, moving over to LPRC, um, I've talked about for a long time, we've been in heavy planning for the impact conference uh, for the first week of October. Um, Diego and the team report, you know, we've got record attendance here. We will maintain that. Um, and that uh, at least 75 to 90% of those that are registering are expecting an in-person experience after we got uh, news from the University of Florida that uh, full occupancy limits are uh, expected now. Um, and I can tell you on campus, summer B term started. Students are back in force. So many students now go in the summer. In fact, you have to go one summer. Um, and uh, they're fully in, in person, in class, in the labs and things like that. So this place has become hectic and busy around Gainesville, Florida again. Um, you know, the, we're looking forward to the product protection and the supply chain protection uh, summits coming up. Uh, we've got really unique uh, opportunities there for everybody to engage. Um, the, again, all seven working groups up and running become visual um, more members. We've had some growth in retailer membership, growth in solution partner membership. Um, all five of the physical LPRC labs, we're continuing to make enhancements in each of those labs. We'll be putting out updated Matterport links. Um, and again, those that are SPs or solution partners, uh, members of the LPRC, you'll see that the solutions directory is linked to uh, the Matterport imagery, the, in other words, into the engagement lab so that people can explore and learn about your technologies, your solutions. Uh, we had a company in yesterday who put in a whole another series of their latest and greatest technologies. Uh, in fact, they're gonna come back and bring more. They're pretty excited. Um, the parking lot lab is up and running. We've got three live view trailers, each with a different array of sensors and capability. Um, two are operating, one we're awaiting a new radar unit for that. Um, but we're excited what all is going on outside in parking lot lab, which is part of the overall safer places lab at the University of Florida. So um, just a lot of exciting things happening here in Gainesville. We're inviting more and more uh, visitors in now. People are coming in. There are no restrictions like we had before. So we're seeing the solution guys putting in their technologies in the labs uh, and we're getting retailers coming in to talk to us or setting visits um, and so on. Uh, we'll have to wait and see again in the UK because of the pandemic, what will happen with LPRC Europe. It's going to happen. We've got uh, several retailers there that are ready to go uh, and, and SPs as well over there. Um, it's just a matter of uh, uh, Tony D'Ofrio, myself and others not uh, wanting or being able to have the luxury of uh, sitting in a hotel room for 10 days in a quarantine until we go to something. So um, but until enough Americans are vaccinated, uh, we're still yellow here uh, for other countries that are green. So, all right, with no further ado, let me turn it over to uh, Tom Meehan. Um, and uh, Tom, if you would, take it away. 
Uh, good morning, Reed. Thank you. Uh, good update there. So a couple couple items. One is there has been another LinkedIn breach. So yes, I say another. This, there was a breach uh, uh, that affected uh, 500 million users in April. It looks like the this breach has affected more than 700 million users. I think of that. 700 million users, double the population of the United States. A uh, pretty wild number when you, you think about the amount of people uh, that it's affecting. So uh, this this breach was found uh, <clears throat> around uh, June 22nd. Uh, and what it basically is, is it's a breach that out of this 700 million users, and I am, my assumption is that um, there will be notification going out. There there has been a, a sample of about a, bit, a million users posted on the dark web, and it includes email addresses, full name, phone numbers, physical addresses, geolocation records, LinkedIn user uh, profile information, personal and professional experience, gender, and other social media accounts. So it's a fairly significant amount of data. Uh, there is no payment data here, um, but it, it really um, shows that they've gotten just about everything there. And, and to put some context in it, and this is still fairly new information, LinkedIn has 765 million users. Um, so if you think of that, it's nearly their whole entire population. Um, you know, obviously 65 million is a lot, but when you think of this, it, it's it's crazy. 93% of their users are found in this breach. I did actually get um, uh, uh, some of the sample data. I actually went and found it because I wanted to see it. And, um, you know, it, it is uh, full information. I wasn't able to uh, to sift it and see if, if mine was in there or not. My assumption is that uh, I would be, but just to, you know, as we continuously talk about our digital landscape increasing, the digital footprints increasing, the risk continues to increase. And when you think of a company like LinkedIn, it is owned by Microsoft, a huge company uh, with uh, obviously probably the best, uh, you know, uh, technical resources behind it, and it's still able to be breached. So nothing is impenetrable. This is just one of those examples of what I would say in the cybersecurity world continues to happen. This is a reminder, and I'm a social media guy. I know Reed and I um, have our personal Facebook accounts where we see our kids. I see his granddaughter and my kids are on there. And um, I also use LinkedIn professionally, so I'm not at all suggesting that you don't. It's just be mindful of the fact that when you are putting information in, uh, this might be a time when you want to put your uh, work address, or you may want to use a different phone number, all those things. The reality is in today's day and age, if you are using these tools, a lot of that information is available. But geotag location is is uh, interesting and concerning, of course. And then other information, if you're on a professional network, is uh, concerning. For so uh, still new news, a lot more to come with it. As we find information out there, we'll continue uh, to share that with the group. Uh, and I will tell you that I think what we're seeing is a trend also of the law enforcement, federal law enforcement, going after some of these more high-profile attacks. So the good news is that I think you will see that that these are these are attacks, and even in countries that are a little challenging, uh, you you will see that. And kind of switching that, you know, uh, there was a a suspect deported from Mexico to face U.S. hacking charges uh, two weeks ago. Um, and this is one of these interesting ones. And we talk about civil disturbance and, and groups um, like Antifa without having, you know, heads and organization and the danger. So this person was uh, a high profile uh, hack, hacktivist or an activist on, on, uh, who was a member of Anonymous, which is while it's not at all like uh, Antifa, it is in the sense that it's more of an idealistic 
approach and it, it isn't necessarily organized not to say that th there aren't subsets that are organized but one of the things that i would say here is this is a an, a, a clear kind of uh, piece where the united states government is going after hackers and even in countries where it isn't as easy now mexico is right across the border very close or in proximity but there are a lot of political channels that have to be manage before you just go in and grab someone whether it's an extra d company or a country or non-extra d country it's still very challenging to do this and we've seen um kind of a rash of and and i joke about it a lot with people when i say this is if you if you're a hacker and you go on vacation you're in trouble because you don't know even in a country that maybe at its at its face value doesn't cooperate with the u.s government and through back channels and intelligence channels there are folks uh, in Central Europe that go to vacation um, in a country that is friendly to the United States, but maybe doesn't have the, the best extra policies or uh, shared policies there. And lo and behold, you'll often hear how so-and-so was on vacation and got arrested with his family, um, or he or she is, is then taken into custody and moved into another country and then eventually makes it back to the United States. This is a a newer phenomenon and i continue to see this happening and i, I think that it, it's a, it's great for the uh, for the folks that are victims uh but these are expensive um ordeals but the investigations are happening specifically with when it comes to ransomware the u.s government has made a really big push to say we are going to do this and be very aware of the fact that we're going to do this so travel and retail industries are facing a wave of credentials uh surfing hacks and this kind of goes in line with the LinkedIn one. One thing, if you you realize I didn't say is passwords for LinkedIn. So the concern always with a hack is username and password because although we all, um, I know everybody, all the listeners here don't do this, but you know people still reuse passwords, which is a major no-no. So there was no password piece there, but now we're seeing a tremendous amount of travel and retail industries being uh, what's what they refer to as credential surfing. And basically what that is, is where you do what I did, you go on to the dark web and you look for credentials and you look for things um, like the LinkedIn breach. I found that if there were passwords, I would basically have a username and password. So Auth0, which is a, a, a cybersecurity research company, did a, a really in-depth report. Um, Auth0 was acquired by a company called Okta, just a, which is uh, an Active Directory kind of combination. But they, they did a report called the State of Security um, and really, in the first three months of 2021, they saw a significant uh, increase in credential surfing specific to retail. And, and what, what that would mean is I would, if I was a, a, a hacker or a, a criminal, I would go on to the dark web or even the open web, and I would search for things like an ex-retailer and user accounts and passwords with that to try to get in uh, into it if from a customer segment or that piece um or even on the flip side a if if i was looking for reed i would look for all of his affiliations lprc the university of florida and then his personal accounts to see if i could get into something uh because oftentimes there is a master kind of email account that uh, 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 controls all of those and again that password reusage so um it, it interestingly enough that most of this activity is done by a bot. Um, in this particular survey, they don't give specifics, but one thing they did really talk about is 15% of all attempts to register a new account can be attributed to a bot. So a lot of times 
um, the bot will actually look for your email to see if you're registered. If you are, then go back to that surfing database to say, okay, I know this is a real email. I know they have an account. Let me see if I can get on there. And um, it, when when this data is done or it is captured, people actually go out and they sell it uh, between fifty and a thousand dollars for validated credentials from credit card records to social media accounts to retail accounts, even Netflix or Hulu accounts. People will basically say, if I buy a whole bunch of other people's Netflix accounts, I don't ever have to pay for Netflix. So this is a this is not just of you know, not just about retail or travel, but it, it just, it seems that there's an increase in retail and travel. And that could be related to the pandemic, right? This is obviously the assumption that I'm drawing is that retail is opening back up. People are starting to travel again. Uh, so the expectation is more emails are going to be traveling. So it's easier to go ahead and get into that. Um, you know, one of the, the, the easiest things to do, um, is to sign up for multi-factor authentication. Just about everybody has it. This is not foolproof, but what it does is it certainly eliminates that bot piece where the bot goes in and sees that it can't get that information. Um, then it moves on to the next one. So multi-factor authentication, that uh, basically what that is, is when you sign into an account and you get that text message or you have to have used an app to enter a code, that's a quick, easy, free way uh, to not eliminate or but not eliminate the risk, but mitigate it significantly, certainly for an automated attempt. So for anybody who has any account, and I mean any, email, uh, financial, social media that you don't have two-factor authentication on, I can't urge you enough to turn it on. Uh, and if you can tolerate the, the extra 30 seconds to use an app-based approach versus an SMS approach or text message approach, you have a much, much greater um, you know, advantage than if you do it that way. Uh, and actually, when I wrap up this story, there was a, a really interesting article about a person, regular person, I would say, who had just started to invest in cryptocurrency and had his two-factor authentication. I was actually on NBC talking about this, and he was on vacation when he got off the, the plane. He got a notification that his account had been locked and that one, his email account had been compromised. And because he had two-factor authentication on, he was able to get back into his accounts and there was um, no money missing. Now, this isn't uh, this glorious or interesting story. What was interesting about it is he said the hackers were monitoring his email, waiting till he got on vacation and actually started to hack while he was on the plane. So once someone's in your email, if they see you're on vacation, they took advantage of that. So this is that that's a human, right? That's not a bot doing that. But they took a, a very strategic approach of saying when this person's on the plane, he's not going to be able to talk into his bank. He's not going to be able to communicate. Um, so we're going to do it then. And he said that it was, the timing was almost exact to when he took off and to when he landed. So just a, a, an understanding of when you do have an attempt like this, it is, while it isn't always sophisticated, sometimes there's really a lot to look at. Um, and uh, when you think about someone in another country, I forgot which country it was here, hacked his account, waited till he got on a plane to go at and after it. And because he had multi-factor authentication, he was able to save that. And um, so while it wasn't the most uh, elaborate, exciting news story, it just a, a refresher for all. And then I'll wrap up with kind of some news that I don't normally talk about, but the, the founder of McAfee Antivirus, so John McAfee, um, you know, committed suicide in, in a Spanish prison, uh, prison. And why this is so interesting is he was... Um, a very extravagant guy who really started getting into the crypto market and he was caught from 
uh, doing tax evasion with cryptocurrency. And the reason I bring it up is this is he had some celebrity status within his following. People really followed him and he really went and there's uh, got a lot of uh, Twitter followers and people to uh, back him and do what he said. And, and interesting enough, even in prison, he was allowed to use Twitter, which I thought was very interesting. Um, and he basically was backed by these small uh, cryptos that are or, or, you know, very new cryptocurrencies that paid him to say that it was good or that you should invest in it. So when you think of the cryptocurrency, um, and I know this goes without saying it, but if you see an ad or a celebrity talking about it, do your research. Uh, the reason I bought the, the John McAfee up was not really to talk about that was because the internet was just inundated with kind of conspiracy theories about the government killing him and um, Spanish uh, authorities confirmed through autopsy that he was. Uh, in fact, uh, it was suicide. The one thing that there was a kind of a fact check, uh, check is yesterday, there was news that circulated all over the world that he had owned the building in Florida that collapsed. This is not true. And that's really why I wanted to bring it up. And I wanted to really remind people of the dangers of the internet. And, and these were major news publications talking about this and the, the importance of fact checking for all of us. I know all of us on the call, we use the internet uh, for all sorts of things, whether it's active intelligence gathering, research on projects. And uh, one of the things the LPRC is all about is science-based uh, research or fact-based research. And this is just a reminder that just because it's on the internet and a major news po uh, a publication says it doesn't mean it's true, doesn't mean it's not true, but take the time to read it. I was actually, I'm on vacation this week and I was actually out and someone said, oh, you must have read about this. And I immediately said, it can't be accurate, just common sense, right? Like what are the chances? And then went back and there's no, no, no evidence that he owned this condo that collapsed. But that was something that someone took the time to ask me about yesterday because they saw it on, on the internet. And I, I think it's, I, I've written about this. I've talked about this, the dangers of misinformation and making decisions based on it. So I think uh, I'm going to uh, turn it over to Tony now, but um, everybody stay safe. Thank you very much. Uh... Tom and Arid uh, for having me on. Hola from Spain. I'm actually sitting in Spain right now. But let me uh, go through some interesting data from this week. And I'm actually going to start um, in the US. And actually, there's some new data that came out from the Statista on how Americans are increasingly returning back to more normal. So when they were asked, how comfortable you be doing the following, this is what they responded. So going to a restaurant, it was 37% in January this year. It was 50% in March. It's now 68% are comfortable going into a restaurant. Going to a mall, it was 32% in January, 47% in March. Now 63% are comfortable walking into a mall. And going on vacation, 29% in January, 45% in March, and 63% in June. So we're getting a lot more comfortable. Also interesting this week was some new data in terms of how our shopping priorities have changed through COVID and how they continue to change. And this one is actually from RIS News. 53% of consumers are now buying things online more than normal, with almost 80 in 10 shoppers expect to do increased online purchasing over the next 12 months. Consumers are still being conservative with their spending, 78% still say they will need 
need to be very careful with their money. And 49% already cut down on frivolous spending. Travel is an area that is coming back, uh, and 40% are expected to spend more than they did pre-COVID. More than half of the shoppers are now buying things online that they previously bought in stores, and 38% are, are less likely to shop in store than they were before COVID. Incredibly, 75% of shoppers are, are shopping locally. So this whole trend of shopping locally is actually increased due to COVID, uh, which is a good thing because it's supporting local retailers and uh, local shops. So some good news in terms of how retail is, is trending up and how our, our shopping patterns are changing. And let me end this week with a new article that I just published on the state of RFID in, uh, in the world. And actually I titled this, this uh, article, what's driving the 93% retail RF, uh, RFID adoption in North America. So the technology really has been around for years. It was invented after World War II. And I've been writing about it actually for quite a while. My first article on this came out in 2012. When, and I recently, in the past few years, spoke about the deployments of Nike and Walmart. But really what it's attacking is the huge problem of inventory distortion. Inventory distortion is $1.8 trillion in the world. That's trillion with a T, or equivalent to 10.3% of uh, retail sales. Or, or as uh, um, the IHL group that did the inventory distortion study said, it's the equivalent of the entire GDP of Canada. That's how much is lost to inventory the, the distortion. RFID is one of the most uh, top three. It's actually one of the three technology that can address inventory the distortion. Apparel has led the way in terms of deployments and it is growing like crazy. In fact, label applications have been having a compounded annual growth rate of 24% since 2016. And in 2020, nearly 20 billion labels are gonna be applied. So the North America uh, adoption rate is actually at an amazing 93%. And the way that breaks down is 8% are piloting RFID, 37% are currently implementing RFID, and 47%, this was a shocker to me, 47% of the retailers responding to the survey said that they have fully deployed already RFID. In Europe, the adoption rate is 77%, which splits off as 8% piloting, 37% implementing, and 32% with full adoption. So Europe is behind. Asia also has a 77% adoption rate, 6% piloting, 25% implementing. And like North America, again, this was a shocker to me, 47% of Asian retailers that responded to the survey actually have full adoption of RFID. Uh, the adoption of RFID is moving beyond traditional applications, and it's actually getting into things like how to help a buy online, pick up in stores, how to help self-checkout. In the past year alone, the omnichannel options retailers offer have increased 66%. Uh, and for adopters and piloters, then they're offering five or more of these new services like buy online, pick up in stores, ship from store, 
ship to store, reserve and store, mobile app purchasing, and home delivery. As the adoption has increased, um, so has the return on investment. According to the same survey that I cited in the article, uh, for those retailers that are fully adopted RFID, they reported more than 10% ROI compared to 9% in 2018. So the, the, the actual ROI. Furthermore, if you add more layers of the RFID application, uh, you actually increase your ROI. So for those retailers that enable five or more omni-channel shopping experiences, they are seeing a 20% plus ROI from the deployment RFID. Uh, and there's multiple examples that I cite in the article. For example, uh, Decathlon, which is a European sports retailer with 1,600 stores, that they tag more than 85% of the, the products. They've moved beyond the inventory visibility. They're using RFID to actually improve store operations. And they've seen, because of that deployment rate, tripling their labor productivity and cutting stockouts to raise revenue by two and a half percent. I also cite that RFID is being used to improve customer service. And I talked about fitting rooms and the example that I provide is Chanel in collaboration with Farfetch is using RFID in, in smart enabled fitting room to show shoppers product details in terms of uh, uh, where they, what they can actually buy in addition to what they're trying on. In future discussions, I'll talk about more what's happening in loss prevention because there is a lot of activity with RFID, especially as EAS, as it's growing. And finally, what I conclude in the article is that although RFID is getting expanded, some retailers get stuck in the pilot process and sometimes it takes too long because it can be challenging. The most critical success factor is actually having senior executive sponsorship to actually get it done. And I'll close by saying that the place to actually learn more and actually get engaged and understand RFID and other IoT technologies is here at the LPRC with the researchers because, and also many of the retailers that, that are members that are, actually have deployed RFID. And with that, let me turn it over to Reed. All right, excellent. Thank you so much, Tom. Good stuff, great briefings. Thank you, Tony, for all your insights. Uh, very powerful stuff. And um, yes, with the emerging technologies, technologies at scale and affordability, you know, we're all looking forward to, you know, more rapidly testing and adopting uh, those for multiple use cases. You kind of described, you know, at LPRC, we don't endorse a particular um, mode or uh, manufacturer, but at the same time, when the testing comes together, and especially when it provides multiple benefits, or even one, if that's a cost-effective benefit. So excellent stuff, emerging world. So I want to thank everybody for dialing in, tuning in, listening in. Um, lpresearch.org, uh, operations at LP Research for any suggestions or questions, comments you might have. Um, everybody stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast, presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. 
Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council. 